Welcome back to Riot Underground. You've found the place where instigators are changing the world with disruptive technology. I'm Sarah Glova, and in this episode, we're back with Scott Turnbull, Director of Technology at US Ignite. We added this bonus episode because Scott started an unexpected discussion with two interns who attended our recording session. The two interns were Maria Cisneros and Gibson Gear Westfall. They attended the session just to observe as part of their internship with Leadership Exchange, an educational organization founded by Heather McDougall, dedicated to providing young people with the skills and opportunities they need to become active and responsible citizens in our global community. So let's start this episode off with the intern's conversation with Scott about why they were interested in the podcast recording. What attracted you to this? Why was it like, yeah, this is my jam. I'm going to do this. So we're actually with Leadership Exchange, um, and we're doing the program called Women and Innovation. And so a couple of the students in the class, we are interested in entrepreneurship or social entrepreneurship. So additionally, because of the course, having the component of learning about women and leadership positions and issues about women and leadership positions attracted me as well. So I'll jump in here and add, Maria and Gibson volunteered to sit in on this session just to see behind the scenes. They just raised their hands and asked to be involved, which is pretty cool. But I mean, that's an example of like conversations that are poised to happen. Like you're here, yeah. you're ready, you're like, hey, I want to I do this, I'm involved. The ground is fertile. We just need leadership. And that's here, right? So I'm hitting on us hard. <laughs> we need leadership to just, you need to get out of your office. You need to talk to people as equals. You need to just listen with so open true. ears. I mean, the, the work's there. It's so funny you say that, Scott, because there's a little bit of like how the interns are here today. I, I was out grabbing coffee in the HQ Raleigh kitchen, and that's one of our just really communal spaces. And I saw Heather, who she's the founder of Leadership Exchange, and she saw me and was nice enough to stop me and introduce me to her new cohort of interns, to, to the whole group. So I said hello, and Heather offered me a chance to share my background. So we had a chance to talk, and I think it was maybe 30 seconds in that I was sharing the history of women entrepreneurship in Raleigh, right? Yeah. We were having that conversation in the middle of the kitchen. Um, Scott, just his background, I was sharing with Nerea and the interns that H.R. 5050 that passed in D.C. in 1988 is the, the bill that made it illegal for banks to require male relatives co-sign on female business loans. What year was that? 1988. It's so incredible. before that, it was still legal for banks to say to a female who had her own business, 100% owner, had good credit score, mm-hmm. had uh, accounts receivable to weigh against a uh, credit line, you need to have your husband sign or your father sign, or if neither of those were options, there are stories of women in North Carolina who had their sons, their high school age sons sign wow. on that. So that became illegal in 1988. The reason I shared that with the group, because of course that was that made illegal at the federal level under the Reagan administration is there was a group in this area that was formed in 1978. So when I say this area, it was formed by Mary Diener, who was the first female to have a business in RTP uh, in 1978. So for 10 years, women in this area of North Carolina and also in Charlotte campaigned for HR 5050. So there's a huge history of political advocacy focused on women and entrepreneurs in this area. And I think we feel the effects of that today when we see so many female entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. especially in spaces like HQ Raleigh. But to bring it back to kind of the point, if you weren't working out of HQ Raleigh, I wouldn't have bumped into you. We wouldn't have had a chance to have that conversation. And I don't know if you'd be sitting in the room listening in on the podcast. So yeah, no, it's been a really good opportunity. I think that Having the program at, at HQ and being surrounded by 
so many like businesses around you and just how innovative HQ is and what they're doing here has been kind of like eye-opening and we both love Raleigh a lot. We're like, we should live here. I don't know. I'm still reeling from that 1989. You couldn't, I mean, yeah. that, that's insane, man. I I, th- actually, if I could discuss it. Th- so this is, this is why it, it cr- makes me crazy. Um, like you need to think how much revenue was lost out of the economy because mm-hmm. half of the population couldn't start a business. How much, how many missed businesses, how many missed jobs were there? Yeah. It drives me insane. To, and, and of course I, I know people need, really don't have another middle-aged white guys talking about diversity, but, um, <laughs> like if you talk about just bring it back as many conversations as you can possibly have and increase your endurance to do it. Like we have to look at what we do fundamentally is we give birth to conceptual models, right? That's what software engineering is, even IoT. It's about taking an idea of how things might fit together and needs that the public might have, stacking some engineering behind it and putting it out there in the public that way it makes a difference in people's lives or forms mm-hmm. of business, right? So we're only as good as the conceptual, mo- the number of different conceptual models and ideas that we have. Kickstarter has proved there's untapped markets. AWS came out of the blue, that, and then suddenly it was like, of course we should do this. Right. Conceptual model, right? Business models, Angie's List, anything. We've gotten by on an economy out of such a thin slice of people producing those conceptual models. Mm-hmm. That is played out. It is done. Mm-hmm. So there are jobs aplenty in the future. If we can tap everybody to bring their ideas to the table, we won't have enough people to get to the things we need to do. We need to maybe adjust how we're going to do payment around it. We prioritize capital funding probably needs to change too. But that's why we're not doing somebody a favor by including them in the conversation. We're, we're doing ourselves a favor. And I'm, I'm rapidly heading towards being an old man. And I need that economy to make sure that I don't starve to death in some shack somewhere, right? So I just really advocate that that's a power of bringing as many people to that conversation mm-hmm. as you can and having the endurance for bad ideas. The more people you have, the more bad ideas you're going to have, but yeah. the more good ideas you're going to have. That's great. And I think um, something that, that we can touch on there. So you, you mentioned you know, half the economy not being able to participate. And I, I do, I love the statistics about HR 5050 because mm-hmm. I don't think it's as well known as part of our history. It was so incredibly recent um, if in the grand scheme of things. But of course, that's one side of inviting everyone to the table. There are incredible stories from the you know 1950s about um, people of color not being allowed to enter into certain kinds of unions. And so then there's an entire population not being able to participate in a certain trade. And how has that impacted? who's had access to it and been able to innovate within that space. And so the reason I'm kind of reaching back is so now we can touch forward. So Tom, throwing this to you with, we talk about this a lot because of the riot accelerator program. And it's relevant to talk about that with Scott here. Cause I know Scott works on a lot of um, startup projects and has seen different accelerators from different communities. Um, we talk about that a lot in the accelerator program because it's 12 weeks high touch. It's a great way for startups to go from whatever stage they're at to where they need to be. But we've talked about barriers to participation. Yeah, absolutely. There are, um, for a program like ours, uh, it's an immersive program. So folks need to be able to be here physically for 12 weeks and not everyone has the financial wherewithal to do that necessarily. And so we're working with partners to to find ways to bridge that gap. But but when you talk about, uh, Scott, half the population, right now you could think of that also as the urban-rural divide. Yeah. You know, half of our population is not participating in the economy in the way that they could. And that's largely because they don't have the basic tools and utilities like broadband uh, to participate. Um, There's been an awful lot of offshoring of software developer jobs, for example. And there are an awful lot of uh, people that I know 
in Silicon Valley or up in New York or others that uh, wish that they could do exactly the work that they're doing, but do it in a lower cost place to live. But, uh, you know, to the point we made earlier, sometimes it's a matter of once you're only five or 10 miles outside of these urban centers, you suddenly can't do that software development job. But, you know, some smart city planners in India or, or other places around the world, they put that basic infrastructure in place and, uh, you know, soaked up all those jobs, right? And so it, it uh, it's quite easy to bring some of that work back and to uh, get the innovation and the voice of folks with different perspectives because they live in a different place or grew up in a different uh, setting, which are really important. Uh, I'll have one final point to this. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and how these algorithms are developing and they're forming biases because the data that's being trained on them already had the, uh, you know, the history of racism or the history mm-hmm. of uh, these other problems. And, and that's and, one, um, maybe a real example. So machine learning in like an HR setting where you say, hey, study this data set, look at the people we interviewed and which hires were successful. Well, what might be learned there by looking at that data is, you know, okay, we need these demographics of people because they were successful here. But then you ask the question of, you know, why were those people successful? Were they given the same opportunities? Who was interviewed? Is there a bias that's now built into that because there was a bias in who was able to achieve and that was built into the data set? Or or it's just a lack of data, right? Mm -hmm. If we're not connecting Mm -hmm. these other communities, we're not gathering that data to have a full data set to train systems on and, and so on. And so... Um, it's imperative, I think, that that we get everybody equal access, uh, not just because uh, it's just the right thing to do, but it's going to create much greater economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Certain aspects of machine learning are very good at doing what we've always done, but what do you do when that's not what you want to do? Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, Scott, I loved your joke earlier about being dangerous when, you know, we have uh, middle-aged white gentlemen talking about diversity. I think you're both doing a fantastic job, but of course I come with my own Uh, privilege as a middle-aged white female. So something I do want to bring up is um, I heard recently someone advised me to be careful about how I use the word empower. Hmm. So empower is such a buzzword right now. And so if you use it and you say, you know, I want to empower this community to be able to, the argument was that that can make it sound like you have the power and you are giving it to this person who maybe doesn't. Very imperious, right? Yes. And so then the, the argument was to recognize, you know, a lot of times these communities are empowered. They just need a platform or some infrastructure and, um, so being careful about using that term. And I think that's relevant to what we were just discussing because what we've shared so far is is not that, you know, people need to go into these communities and change X or Y or Z. It's just that the infrastructure needs to be put into place so these communities can do whatever it is they want to do or can do or are already capable of doing but are held back from just because the infrastructure isn't there. Although it wouldn't hurt for people to go into these communities as well and understand there, there's a long tail of economic opportunity mm-hmm. that, that's being missed because people just don't understand their customers in these communities either. So I, I think um, I, I agree with your point, Sarah, but I think uh, a little bit more real face-to-face human interaction as well would be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I th- and I think some maybe working with the original community because they do, they will do themselves a favor if they can more concretely stay what they want to do. Like a lot of times they're, they haven't had the opportunity to sit with that problem long enough. So there are some facilitation issues, but ultimately it's about that community and, and, and what they want to do. And I think Scott, that kind of relate. I think that relates to our discussion of these, it, we've talked about them a couple of times, these 27 different groups that you've worked with, these different areas. How many of them have hubs like an HQ? We've seen WeWork nationally. I mean, how many are using co-working spaces 
or I would also add campuses like what we're seeing from Cary, right? They have an innovation lab right on their campus. Yeah, so I'll interject quickly. Cary um, has basically made their uh, center government complex like an open source plug and play. You come, you have some new uh, solution for the city. Here's how you plug in. Here's an open API. Build it. They'll test it on this center campus where they can get public inputs as is appropriate for any new uh, city service that comes in. Their IT team can try before they buy and find out does it really work or not. You know, it creates a great opportunity to create kind of a launch pad for entrepreneurs to engage with the municipality to hopefully provide new citizen services, um, but but do it in a very open and transparent way. Yeah, I see about 80% of the community seem to have some sort of HQ-like entity that's there, which is usually very successful. In your work, when you're convening all these different organizations, you work with organizations that have different mentalities, different goals, different speeds. How do you balance that as you're connecting people? Uh, for me, I, I mean, I have to be sensitive to what their environment's like and know that, I mean, so let's say universities, I mean, they're very, they're protectionist because they feel like they're stewards of a, of a, their institutions, right? They're, they're protecting something in our culture, which is not misaligned. That That's true. But you have to get to them to the point of things they can accept. And come on, man, you can do this. Come on. What's the chances of all the people in the world? What's the chances you couldn't do it? Everyone wants to feel important. Everyone wants to feel like they're accomplishing something. And there's, a, there's this feeling in technology of this churn, right? And it really harshes everybody's mellow. They're, they're sort of like, ah, this is just this turnover and we're really not going anywhere. And okay, I'll do this job because it's my job. But but if they can feel like, oh, this makes a difference. I have a product that people will use. Mm-hmm. They suddenly get a little bit on fire. And that works even in universities and government. What do you well, think? One of the things that we found that I think is interesting and, and is the role for nonprofits and, and um, some of what you were describing earlier uh, as them kind of being leaders and catalysts is that we can work outside the system to some degree. So we can partner with a university, which is a very large bureaucratic organization. We can participate with municipalities, which can be very large bureaucratic organizations. But by running projects kind of just a half a step outside those organizations, you can still shepherd the resources, you can get participation, you can get buy-in, you make sure you're aligned on goals, but you can move at a different pace. I see. So when you say we, you mean Riot. So when they are doing these partnerships with Riot, they're able to perhaps work with this organization that's kind of orbiting what they're doing, has other connections outside and can maybe be a test bed for some of their ideas. And so there's another key to partnerships. Yeah. When when something is maybe going at a certain pace in your organization, you know it needs to move quicker, you can work with an organization like Riot. And I would even argue the inverse. If you if you as an organization like Riot or like US Ignite needs to have a research team that's backing these projects, then there's a partnership. And yeah. we saw that at our more recent event, the Gigabit Cities event that US Ignite sponsored, we had a chance to see research projects that were funded by U.S. Ignite, but housed within academia, most of them. Yeah, yeah, most of them, with support from the National Science Foundation. I want to give them a big shout out. Yeah, I think that um, that support is helpful, but I, I think actually to expand on the topic, your, your last question, you have to understand the anatomy of the organizations you're working with and be able to address it in a way. Because usually if you bring it up, they're able to address. So if you universities and government, universities more so. If you tell them, listen, we want to talk about this research project we're getting out. We want to connect it with somebody in Texas or elsewhere in North Carolina or something like that. You need to tell them that all your input is very valuable. But one of the things we, we want to avoid that sometimes happen here is you fill a room with 20 people. Any one of them can say no. Nobody can say yes. Mm-hmm. That's probably not going to get us to where we need to be. So if you can name the those pieces of the environment and specifically in that way, they'll usually go, yeah, you're right. That's not what we want. 
so that you'll ask them and go back and forth with them. Let's go, how will we avoid that? What could we do? How are we making these decisions here? They might need time to think about it. They might even need time to come back and tell you it was their idea in the first place. You know, that, that, that's fine. <laughs> sure. um, There's that endurance for conversations coming back. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I, mean, I think some of that you need management acumen mixed with technology skills enough to know how these organizations function. That's great. So there are lots of different things that pull our attention in different directions in today's world. Um, how do you balance that? You don't. I mean, you're going to see what you see and over time it'll all equal out, but you just, you have to focus on your areas. Don't get complacent, build your own endurance, right? Discipline to read, discipline to talk to people, talk to people smarter than you most of the time. Thank you for having me here. Cause that's what <laughs> I'm doing here. Uh, but talk to people who are infinitely smarter than you and you'll at least look smart, if not be smart. Thanks for tuning in to Riot Underground, the place where you hear from instigators who are changing the world with disruptive technology. And a huge thanks to Scott Turnbull for joining us these last three episodes. And also, let's use this opportunity to say thanks to all the leaders and innovators out there pushing these issues forward, having what Scott called endurance for conversations. Our next episode series will feature Amber Cobb, who is an account executive at Tuvesud, and she's got a fascinating background and a career in the testing and regulatory world that she's going to pull back the curtain a little bit and let us take a peek into. So... Uh, tune in. You won't want to miss it. Riot Underground is created and produced at Riot Studios with music created by Scott Jackson. Riot produces events, conferences, and educational courses around the world and runs an early stage startup accelerator in Raleigh, North Carolina. Our nonprofit also operates a wireless test and certification facility under the Wireless Research Center brand. Learn how to engage by visiting us at ncriot.org.